Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Generative AI is definitely the word we will remember 2023 by. Knowing that administrative burden is among the key reasons for physician burnout, the idea that AI could tackle this challenge became a little bit more tangible with the raised awareness and public understanding of generative AI. But where are we exactly and how is generative AI utilized for clinical use cases, administration, patient care and in biotech? GSR Ventures and Maven Ventures are two health technology-focused VC firms that analyzed 145 startups across healthcare delivery and life sciences with generative AI solutions. They highlighted their innovations, challenges, and market potential. Collectively, these startups have earned more than 20 billion US dollars in funding and have 47,000 employees. I had the pleasure to chat with partner at JSR Ventures, Justin Norden, about the report and details such as why has biotech raised most so far among these categories? Why not startups working on the administrative issues? How do investors look at liability issues with generative AI in healthcare? And what exactly are they looking for in startups apart from a great team? I hope you will enjoy the discussion, but just before we begin, I'd like to introduce you to a drink based on matcha green tea I recently came across. Magic Mind, which is also a sponsor of the show, created conveniently packed shots that can help you stay focused. Magic Mind is a combination of 12 active ingredients scientifically designed to improve energy, focus, decrease stress and improve mood. I personally drink coffee regularly, but because it's a habit, it's not really an effective energy drink for me. Green tea is different and I've been a fan of matcha for years. But if you want to prepare matcha properly, you need a special bamboo whisk and a bowl to prepare it. Not really convenient on the road or in the office. That's why I like Magic Mind. It's conveniently packed, you can take it anywhere, and it has additional beneficial ingredients that can impact your focus. Served cold, it's also really refreshing during the summer. So, if you're interested in improving your feeling of alertness and reducing your coffee intake, this might also be a product for you. Go to magicmind.com/digitalhealth and if you decide to test the product, make sure to use the code digitalhealth20. For a very limited time, you can get 50% off if you decide to get a subscription or 20% off for a one-time purchase. I added the link and the code to the show notes. And if you haven't yet, do check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com or follow us on LinkedIn. All the links are in the show notes. Now let's dive into today's discussion.
Justin, hi, very nice to meet you. And thank you for joining this discussion on phases of digital health, where we're going to highlight the current state of investments in large language models and basically what's the perspective of the investors about the whole field. Maybe before we go into the, this niche in digital health, we can talk about the general thoughts about the investments in digital health this year. The Rock Health report just came out in July and it shows that the investments in the first half of 2023 reached 6 billion US dollars, which is the same as in 2017, much less than last year and definitely much, much less than in 2021. So what's your perspective on that? How has your year been thus far? Yeah, so the digital health market is certainly different from an investing landscape and from where things were, especially at the peak in 2021, 2022. Lots of people are saying, oh my gosh, the sky is falling, no one can raise money. And, and that's not true. However, it is very different. But if you take the broader perspective and looking at the Rock Health Report, but not just the Rock Health Report, but the broader venture capital community, 2021 and 2022 were the anomalies, not this year. And if you're a company that's growing quickly, that's doing well, that has the right metrics, these companies are able to find funding are getting funded, are still growing, and things are still positive. However, it's not at the same prices and at kind of the peak of 2021. And overall, from an investor perspective, I'd say, yes, things are changed, things are different. And I think especially lots of startup founders are feeling this and feeling a different environment. Overall, I think it's okay. I think we, you know, good companies are still getting funded. Lots of people are looking to fund those companies, including us at GSR, but it's just a different landscape than it was a few years ago. I think that one word that 2023 is going to be known for is either large language models or chat GPT. I'm wondering what kind of companies are reaching out to you? Is there any difference in that regard in terms of the funding that's being searched for? Absolutely. And so I'd say the one area where things haven't necessarily come down to new prices and if you're related to generative AI. And companies that are squarely in generative AI have a very strong team, a very strong thesis, are seeing rounds get done quickly and rounds getting done at more attractive founder-friendly valuations. With that said, in healthcare, it's a little bit, it's a little bit different where in healthcare, lots of people are really trying to apply these new technologies into this field. They aren't doing novel work necessarily. They aren't pushing things to the very edge of what the technology is capable of. They're applying it elsewhere. And so one of the things we highlight in the report is lots of things that really weren't possible before are now actually quite easy to do with these new tools. And the technology barrier has basically fallen away almost completely and almost overnight. And so I think that has been a challenging part for startups to figure out in healthcare is how do they differentiate? How are they talking about how they're different and how are they showing that they're building a long, sustainable business? in an area where the technology landscape is changing quickly. And so there's lots and lots of activity. We just published a report a few weeks ago highlighting a number of startups in the space and where we think the opportunities are. But candidly, it's also been difficult trying to figure out which startups to partner with and what are the long-term differentiated business models. So you mentioned the report. You basically analyzed 145 startups across healthcare delivery and life sciences that use generative AI 
solutions? Did you talk to all of them or how did the whole analysis look like? We didn't talk with all of them. I don't think we would have ever finished just coordinating schedules and getting everything done. But we were able to speak with a handful of founders to do more in-depth interviews as to what they were doing, what they thought about the space and where they thought about opportunities. In terms of finding the other startups, we used the other resources, PitchBook, CV Insights, otherwise just network to know which startups were generally in the AI space. I think a few interesting takeaways is companies are at very different spots with using this technology. There's existing companies who've been working with AI who are now pivoting to incorporate a lot more of these generative AI and new tools that are coming out. And then there's a lot of companies that were just started very recently going after the very kind of straightforward problems to solve with generative AI around note-taking, prior authentication, coding. And so there, there's really a mix of old companies trying to incorporate these new tools and new companies being founded about around very specific problems. So let's look at the categories that you have in the report. How did you basically categorize the, the companies? Did anything stood out for you in that sense? Was it difficult to decide who's going to go where? Yeah, in terms of the, just the categories, this is as we worked with our partner Ambar from Maverick and John, who worked on the report with us as well, different customers that you can sell to, different ways to think about it. We wanted to break it up into a few categories. So the categories we chose were life sciences. Again, companies thinking about, you know, R&D, working with life sciences, patient-facing companies directly interfacing with patients, clinician-facing companies, companies purely on the administrative side, and then the analytics and IT. And this is just one way we categorize the world in just terms of who are you really building products for and who's really going to be use, using what you're developing. And so th that's how we thought about the products and companies tend to fit nicely into these buckets. I looked at the numbers of how much was raised by basically different categories. And I thought it was interesting that basically life sciences raised 6.5 billion, which was actually the highest amount among all the categories. Quite surprisingly, the administrative category only had 2.7 billion US dollars, which I think is interesting given that we keep saying that the administrative burden could be significantly decreased with the use of this technology. But if we stay with just live sciences, how do you interpret that result? Does the high investment relate to the fact that the biotech has a potentially more expensive R&D and hence requires more funding. Where's the reason for that, in your opinion? A few things I would say. I think the life sciences companies that have been using AI, these companies have in general been around for longer. So these are older companies that have taken on very ambitious targets to basically reinvent the whole drug discovery process. And then the pursuit of that have raised giant sums of money again over the past many years. And I would say it's maybe a little bit misleading in terms of just new generative AI investments and where this new technology is playing, simply because these companies have been around for longer, are using some of these similar techniques, but just have had more time to ramp up in the AI and drug discovery space. Whereas these administrative tools are actually where we're seeing a lot more newer startups going after. And where I think uh, us included think there's a lot of easier opportunities to solve problems with these new AI tools. But these companies are just at very different stages. So it's unfair a little bit to compare a brand new seed stage company with a company that's been around for six or seven years 
has already been trying to take drugs to market. So those companies have raised a little bit more. Oh, yeah, if we look at the number of companies, there are 43 companies in the administrative category and 49 companies addressing the clinical facing need. One thing that I thought was also interesting is the fact that basically 24 companies launched their products after 2020, which means that 120 companies have already been using this even before. So can you comment that a little bit? So what do you see in terms of the differences between the more experienced companies with this technology compared to the younger ones? Yeah. So one of the things we were trying to talk about in the report is how does generative AI fit into this existing healthcare AI landscape? And that's why we chose those words ultimately, because AI has been around for a while. Companies have been using different AI methods for a period of time. But then lots of people are interested on which companies are really using these new generative AI tools and who's using the, these new techniques. And even with speaking to a company, as I see pitches all the time these days, what does their tech stack really look like? What tools are they actually using? How do you actually get under the hood and say, hey, is this explicitly a generative AI company or a regular AI company? Does the distinction matter? How do we think about this? And so the reason why we highlighted companies who launch products a little bit later and highlighted these in the report is just a heuristic to think about, okay, is this a new company with a newly launched product probably leaning towards more of these new use cases? Or is this a company that's been around for much, much longer and has already launched a product pre, you know, this new era that we live in, in terms of tech stack and ways to think about it. And so that's why we chose to differentiate companies in this way. And again, just like we were talking about with the life sciences versus administrative side, lots of these companies that have just released their product in the past after 2020 are on this administrative side. These are brand new companies going out, building new products very quickly now in this space with these new tools. And so that's why we highlight it a little bit differently. How many companies have you invested in in the generative AI field at GSR Ventures? Yeah. So AI is something that we've been very interested in at GSR for quite some time. And so a lot of our existing healthcare AI companies and healthcare companies in digital health as well are using generative AI and have had meetings with them discussing different ways that they're incorporating building in these new tools. Candidly, in terms of new investments, it's been slower and harder as we're picking and choosing where is the big bet that we want to play. We're seeing lots of companies come out as point solutions for doing something very specific. They're a good team. They've built a nice demo. They maybe even have some early customers, but it's been hard to think about, okay, where is the long-term differentiation? What is the long-term play that they're trying to make? And where do we get excited about making a bet? And so one of the things we're looking for at GSR for this new generative AI companies is what are companies with a bigger vision that are able to build a platform or able to build a differentiated product or able to build a moat that's more than just building a little bit of a wrapper on top of existing, but on top of ChatGPT or any of these other layers that that will potentially get disrupted by someone else. And did, does anything stand out to you so far, like any of the new ideas that you saw? Because you mentioned two things during the discussion. One thing is that with this technology, a lot more is possible than it was before. And there's also a lot more companies that are potentially reaching out where they just build something on top of the existing model. Yeah. What are you paying attention to apart from what you already mentioned? 
Yeah, I think a, a few things. I think one of the things we're really looking for is where are entrepreneurs able to look and go after new markets, things that didn't really exist before, where there aren't incumbents in the space and they're able to move quickly, things that didn't exist before with these new tools. Historically, this is where startups really have advantages versus incumbents on seeing a new opportunity and going after a new market in terms of what's happening. So that's an area we're certainly keeping an eye on within, within the startup ecosystem. Another thing that we're really interested in is companies who've really found an area where the technology is able to provide a 10x improvement over the status quo. And so in, in certain cases, an example of this, although it's a very crowded, is in note-taking. The technology now is 10x over where it was 12, 12 months ago in terms of what a startup can do and enable a physician to, to help with note-take. It used to have humans in the loop. It used to have all these additional checks. And now that can really be automated in a way that's far superior than before. Although, so the flip side is that area is very crowded, but this really is kind of significant improvement over where people were looking at previously. I think mm -hmm. the last thing that we're really excited about is companies and founders able to find differentiated go-to-markets. How do they build strategic partnerships, alliances, where they're able to go out and not slog through the typical 12 to 36 month sales cycle working with the health system, pharma, and where are their teams that can generate that buy-in from customers that they're working with and really get out faster. That's another area where that, that we're really excited about. Do you have any tips or tricks or advice for startups in terms of how to speed up the lengthy go-to-market strategy? So a few things. It depends which of those customers I just mentioned you're going after, but are you really solving something that they desperately want? especially for a health system, you want to be on their top one, two, or three priorities for that year. Otherwise, it's going to take too long. And otherwise, you're going to end up in pilots and it's just going to take too long before you get something done. So how can you be on their top priorities and solving a pain point that they care about? The other thing to think about is where, what proof points do you have and what proof points can you lean on to show that you're able to deliver the value that you're talking about? When you have very clear ROI, and especially as budgets are getting tighter this year, and you have a very clear ROI and clear story, it's going to be far easier to convince those partners to, to work with you. So th those are at least a couple things to make it a little bit easier. Two more things in that sense. So one is the trust building between the clients and the providers of these solutions. AI is great if it works, but clinicians also need to be sure that they know how it works and that can sometimes be difficult. So how do you see that problem? And also the problem that was mentioned in the comment when you basically first posted that this whole research is taking place and that is the issue with perverse incentives in healthcare where basically clinicians and healthcare providers are expected to use these tools that kind of contribute to prevention. But if you do prevention, then you're going to have less customers. So the payer benefits, but you as the provider don't really benefit. So how do you as an investor look at that and also the business models that are presented to you? That's such a key, it's such a key point. And especially with our, I think it's pretty fair to say mess up U.S. healthcare system in terms of the incentives around the table. And this, the difficult incentives have just been such a drag on innovation in the U.S. healthcare ecosystem. And there's this balance that, that we have to run through as, a, as an investor in digital health is both this incredible optimism for seeing how 
things should be and the way things you want things to be with, especially in healthcare, you have to interact and work within the existing ecosystem. We've seen time and time again, founders and companies trying to go too far to to completely try and reinvent the system and get nowhere with what's happening. And I'll get back to your trust point in a second, but from a business model perspective, where can you find aligned incentives? And I think there's a few places where this is starting to happen. One, we are starting to see more value-based contracts popping up, whether that's companies innovating in the primary care landscape or in certain conditions, people, companies starting to get paid more and more on, on value. And there's an area where if you're a startup and talking about efficiency or administrative efficiency that can be gained by some of these new AI tools, that's a ripe opportunity to think about capturing some of the benefit of the value that you're creating. On the other hand, I think a lot of these tools actually fit in nicely to the fee-for-service system that is most of U.S. healthcare payment. And for example, we talk a little bit about tech-enabled services, which historically has been, I think, a very hard market for startups to find enough margin for them to show that they're that much more efficient, that they're able to be valued more like technology companies than services companies. One of the things that's exciting about these new AI tools is startups that have been tech-enabled services companies that lean into this new form of automation could start to see their margin profiles changing. We don't need to change any of the economics. We don't need to change any of the incentives. But companies that really lean into these tools could see improved bottom lines. Mm -hmm. To get back to your first point on trust, to me, this is the key issue that is preventing adoption of these new AI tools within healthcare. Healthcare has been burned so many times by overpromises in technology. We've seen the Watson AI failures. We've seen EMRs really holding a lot what physicians think a lot of healthcare back. We've seen overpromises and RPA time and time again, digital transformation has failed in healthcare. And so I think there's a big resistance and lack of trust for new technology companies saying it's going to be different. So that is really the key barrier in terms of implementing these new tools and getting them adopted. What's fascinating both as a physician and a technologist from my perspective is the technologies here. We finally have the tools that really are able to perform at a level that in certain cases is comparable to physicians can automate a lot of physicians or other clinical tasks or administrative tasks. And these are performing in a way that could really augment and shake things up. So now the key question is how do companies navigate and build that trust with health systems and providers to actually see those benefits? Mm -hmm. And how are the companies basically that you are working with and supporting and navigating the challenges? I think it's also, if you're on the other side, if you're a provider, it's also really difficult to basically understand what somebody is trying to sell you because the technology is moving really fast. And we're not just talking about generative AI, we're talking about just wrappers on top of another model or somebody mm -hmm. that built their own large language models. There's just something new every day. Then there's like open source AI and just, I mean, you have to have a lot of also technical knowledge to be able to assess that. And then every time when it comes to technology, the real caveat in success is the implementation and who's actually going to adopt that or not. So any thoughts, any additional comments in that end? You're a doctor, you're a you're, you also have the technical knowledge, as you mentioned, so it's a bit different for you, but still. You, you just hit on so many of the key points. I, I, I love it. I feel like those are the talking points I've, I've used elsewhere, but it is a full-time job right now, keeping up with the pace of 
change with these new tools. So I, I teach a class in the this past spring, which we just wrapped up a month ago on generative AI and medicine at Stanford. And one thing I was doing each week is talking about the new changes and developments that came out that week. We've never seen technology progress at a pace like this. And exactly those things that you mentioned, from closed source model performance to open source model performance, to different ways people are talking about training and fine-tuning and deploying these models, it is a rapidly evolving field and not one where most healthcare executives and committees are used to evaluating that technology and seeing what makes sense. And I think there's space for, Do I don't think in general health systems are going to be very successful choosing things on a case-by-case basis, partially because the general timeline to make a decision, the technology will have already changed. It will have already changed if you wait 12 or 18 months and to see where the field is going. And is there an opportunity for us, for another party to help guide and navigate these changes to help show people where things are going? I would be surprised if something like that didn't develop because it's so hard now for systems without this expertise to go in and make those decisions. If I think back to Hims in Chicago a few months ago, basically there obviously that there was a lot of talking about AI. But if you talk to the healthcare providers, there was also a lot of hesitancy in terms of just caution that we need to be careful in terms of what's used in healthcare and a little bit of hesitancy also because there's a lot of unknowns in terms of the consequences that this might bring. Do you observe anything additional in that sense? Absolutely. And I think just from conversations with health systems, there's even multiple buckets. There's some percentage of health systems that are saying, nope, everything's banned. We don't want to use these tools. We don't know how safe they are. We don't know how to evaluate them. Just outright banning any of these new tools. I think that's a huge percentage of health systems saying it's just too risky. Let's wait and see how this develops. Then there's other systems saying they see the potential they want to lean in, but they're figuring out where and how to play. Where do they want to lean in first? And in general, I would say systems are leaning towards thinking about administrative use cases before clinical use cases, where the regulatory landscape is still evolving and a little less certain. And those are a few of the different buckets of ways that I think people are thinking about decision-making. But I really agree with that. I think administrative use cases are where we should start as a field, even though some of the clinical decision-making, clinical decision support performances are quite impressive by algorithms such as systems such as GPT-4, MedPalm-2. They're publishing their performance on a number of the different physician exams and doing quite well. I think that's where we go later. I think there's far easier problems to start with, a lot less regulatory burden and a lot less patient or physician risk. And then eventually, once we solve those, we can move towards the more clinical-facing problems. Which almost answers my next question. Which field do you think is going to mature and develop most slowly with the help of generative AI. If you just look at all the categories that you have on the map of 145 companies. So there's administrative part, the note-taking, diagnosis, and I can't think of others. But yeah, I th- go. what do you think? Which one's going to go most slowly? Yeah, so try to talk about this a little bit. We tried to make a two-by-two, two, both on one axis talking about companies with early signs of adoption to very early from a business model perspective. That's one axis. Another axis was technological simplicity to technological complexity. And the 
hardest access there, we put personalized medicine and genomics. Of This is an area where there's still a lot to figure out from a technical perspective, and the business models and adoption is very minimal. And so this is where we think it'll take the longest for these tools to really automate and change things. Robotics and automation, things like fully automated surgeries and things like this, I think while exciting and fun to think about from a research perspective, truly automated robotic surgery business model perspective, I think we're still years and years away. On the other side of the spectrum, it's things like note-taking and medical coding are people are moving now and big companies and small companies are moving now making this happen. And so those are at least a few examples at the end of the spectrum. I've got just one last question, which is also related to the things that you were just talking about. And that is, how do investors currently look at liability concerns when it comes to generative AI? We still have double standards when it comes to technology versus people. We expect technology to be 100% accurate. Whereas we expect that people make mistakes and that you just need second opinions, different doctors see things differently, et cetera, et cetera. But like when it comes to technology, that could basically kill your business if something goes wrong. Yeah. And I think both as an investor and then in thinking about where startups should play, this is something we have written about in the past and previous versions. But also, so prior to joining GSR, GSR Ventures, I was founder and CEO of a company called Trustworthy AI. We were building ways to understand algorithm safety and trust. And we ended up selling that company to Waymo, one of the most advanced AI companies in the world and in the area for autonomous driving, where these systems need to perform at incredibly high levels before they're safe to be in autonomously deployed out, out on the streets. And the... The re thing we talk about when comparing and contrasting where we need to be in autonomous vehicles versus healthcare is to get the value out of an autonomous vehicle, you really have to remove the driver completely from the equation to see value. Before you get there, your costs really don't change. And so you have to be nearly perfect to deploy an autonomous vehicle. In healthcare, actually, you can get a lot of value before you remove a human. And I would argue especially for the clinician, even if we could remove the clinician, there's a lot of inherent benefits to the clinician-patient relationship and many reasons why we would never want to remove a clinician completely from the equation. And there's lots of ways these AI tools can augment instead of completely automate or replace a clinician. And the difference is if we're shooting for augmentation rather than complete replacement, then these systems don't need to be perfect these systems can be helpful. And the, ultimately, the liability and risk can still lie with the clinician making the decision. But it can really still fundamentally improve maybe the number of patients they're able to see or the accuracy at which they're able to diagnose correctly what patients they are seeing. And, and yes, these systems have to be very good and we need to measure them and we need to measure their performance and understand where they're being. But I'll actually disagree and say we shouldn't be shooting for 100%. The difference between, and this is part of the issue with the autonomous vehicle field, why it's taken so much longer than people predict, is getting to 99% actually was pretty fast. Getting to 99.9999% turns out to be very difficult. And my hope is that we actually can use AI in healthcare before we get to that same level of fidelity. We just have to do so in a way where systems incorporate people, incorporate other safety checks, and we're able to get this out earlier. Um, and I don't think we should be shooting for complete automation. 
with AI in healthcare, especially for these clinical decisions. We should be shooting for augmentation, and this will allow us to deploy faster and in a safer manner. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health, a proud member of the Health Podcast Network. If you enjoyed the show, do leave a rating or a review wherever you get your podcast, subscribe to the show, or follow us on LinkedIn. Additionally, check out our newsletter. You can find it at fodh.substack.com. That's fodh.substack.com. Stay tuned.